Welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. This week we are in a series called, What's the Point? Why bother with church? Simply put, Jesus is excited about building his church and God's people continue to be the light of the world. What we do and how we are different from the world makes the church essential to a society that is slipping further away from God. Listen to this talk and see how we are called to make a difference in this world. I'd like to start with a story, as I often do with my talks, and I realize that some aspects of this story you've heard before, but some of it maybe you haven't. Uh, The first time I ever decided to take a trip, a foreign missions trip to another country, it was about 20 years ago, maybe even 25 years ago, and I was going down to Honduras, and uh, it was a frightening experience for me. I mean, it was really a scary experience, and there are lots of reasons why. First of all, I went alone. And so here I was going to a foreign country where they don't speak English, most don't speak English. My Spanish was not good. And so I wouldn't recommend ever doing that, just going by yourself. Uh, And then we flew a Honduran airline called Sasa, and some of you have heard me talk about this before. Those who live in Honduras, when they found out I flew Sasa, they said, you know what that stands for, don't you? And I said, no, and they said, it it stands for stay at home, stay alive. Uh, Even there, it did not have a good reputation, you know, and the airline actually went out of business the year after I was there. Uh, And so this was kind of the start of things, and then we were up in the airplane and we we hit a storm. We flew through a storm. I, I literally saw the cloud coming. And I was looking out the window and we hit this cloud. There was an explosion, a flash of light. The airplane plummeted straight down about 200 feet is my guess. It just like a rock. And all of the compartments opened up, suitcases flew in the aisles. And I was getting ready to stand up and say the only verse I know in Spanish, John 3.16. God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And try to maybe see a few find Christ before we actually hit. I mean, that's what I was thinking was going to happen. I literally was going to stand up and doing that, do that. But we ended up landing safely, but then it, there were problems when we landed. There was no electricity at the airport. They were on a backup electric there. But the worst thing was that there was no one waiting for me. My friends were supposed to meet me at the airport, and then we were, we were going to drive to the next place, but they could not get there because, as I was to later learn, every bridge between where I was and where they were had washed away. There are no bridges, so it's nighttime. I'm in the second most dangerous city in the country. I don't speak the language. It was just kind of a nightmare. In fact, at a certain point, immigration pulled me in a back room. They were trying to get me to bribe them. Uh, Fortunately, they didn't speak English, and I didn't speak Spanish, so I just nodded, no, no. Or I'd say the few words I knew, no puedo pagar. I can't pay, I can't pay, no puedo pagar. I just said it over and over again, you know. I didn't end up giving them anything, but it was, it, was a, it was a trial. And it wasn't until the next day that I finally connected with some friends of mine, and I was so relieved when I saw them. But it was sometime during this trip that I was going with my friends from the church there in Honduras to one of the bigger cities, and we had a bus. So we all jumped on the bus, and I don't remember how far we drove, but eventually we came to one of those bridges that had washed away. And in its place, they had made a makeshift bridge with thick boards. 
Now, this bridge was necessary because the gap underneath the previous bridge went down about 200 feet. It was like a cavern. And they had put boards, boards. I didn't see any metal, just boards across this. I'm guessing the, the gap was one and a half to two and a half times the size of the bus. It was fairly long, but not that long. And when we arrived at that bridge, my thought was, no. <laughs> Surely we're not, we are not, we are not going to cross that bridge in this bus. You got to, no. I expected fully that what they would do is the workers there were going to say, you got to have to turn around, you got to find another way to get to the other side. That is not what they did. They went out front and did this. <laughs> and, and the bus crawled onto those boards. They were thick, of course, but they were boards. And we slowly made a way across. And if the, the plane ride had been scary, this was terrifying. I could look down from the window and it's like, no, Lord, please save us. It turns out, of course, that it was, um, it was, it was sturdy. Uh, the, the faith was not misplaced. One of the things you'll hear me say occasionally around here, which we call this the church affectionately, we call this the ridge, you know, it's Chestnut Ridge Church, but one of the things I say occasionally around the ridge is that our faith is only as good as the object in which it's placed. Some of you have heard me say that before. Your faith is only as good as the object in which you're placing your faith. If the object is not reliable or trustworthy, your faith is worthless. Now, a lot of people, I think, have their faith placed in some wrong things. The average person, for example, that I've talked to over the years believes and is trusting in the idea that they are good enough to get to heaven through their own goodness, their own good deeds, that they, they, they're just confident or they're trusting in the fact I'm a good person and I'm going to heaven, which is contrary to what's taught in the pages of the Bible. None of us are good enough, not one. All of us fall short of God's standard of righteousness. But people are trusting in that, and it's not a reliable thing. It won't save you. That kind of faith will not save you. The only thing that's reliable, from my perspective, is to put your trust in Jesus, the sinless Son of God who took upon himself the sin of the world, who died in our place, paid in full the debt of your sin so that you could receive forgiveness as a free gift by faith. But he's worthy of us putting our trust or faith there. Now, today we're continuing our series titled, what, what is the point, or what's the point? And it's a series that's kind of based on, on Jesus' wonderful creation called the church. But part of the reason we wanted to do this series was to highlight some distinctions between the Ridge and some other churches. Probably about six months ago, maybe a little longer, I just began to reflect on the question, what makes the Ridge different than other churches? Now, don't misunderstand me. I don't mean better. I'm sitting there thinking, what, just what, what distinguishes, what sets apart the church? And there were four things that I came up with, and this is going to be the basis of our talks here. The first one relates to my bridge illustration. We believe the Bible is the Word of God. It is completely trustworthy. That God's Word in the original documents was without error. It's like a reliable bridge that will lead you to God and will lead you to God's ways, and you can put your full weight on it. It's trustworthy. The other subjects we want to talk about here are, number two, that Christianity is about a relationship. It's not about rules. A lot of churches are about rules. So every Sunday you'll be preached at. 
Don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, you know, do this, whatever. Rules, 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 it's all about rules. And people, you know, you go there and you get so defeated like I'm a horrible, horrible person. We don't think it's about rules, it's about Jesus. Christianity, Christianity, it's about Jesus. And if we can focus on a relationship with Jesus Christ, everything else will flow from that. If you're walking in step with Christ, you're gonna be doing the right things and avoiding the wrong things. But it springs from that relationship, so that's our emphasis here. Third is that our mission is the Great Commission. We believe that it's our responsibility to introduce people outside our doors to Jesus. Now, people know of Jesus. I think most people know the story of Jesus. A lot of people do not understand they need to turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. And we're called to make disciples. Now, a church that doesn't have an outward mission like that, it becomes ingrown. And it begins to die. We have a mission that's outside our doors. And then the last thing is that we would like to reclaim the role that the church used to have as being kind of the heart of the community. It it used to be that uh, really a church was the center of of the life of, of a town. If you drive in any town or city in the United States, almost any, when you get downtown, what are you gonna find there? You're gonna find a church or two or three. You know, maybe First Baptist, then First Presbyterian, you know, but, but there are churches there. There's always a church there because it used to be the very center of the community, not just spiritually, but socially. It had, church had an influence on everything in people's lives, but of course that's changed. And a lot of people are questioning, is it even relevant? But we would like to reclaim the relevance and say, yes, no, we have, we have a difference that we can make. We want to be the kind of church that if we disappeared, people would weep over it. Not Christians, everybody would say, oh, that church. We want to make a difference. So we want to be touching on these subjects in the next couple weeks. But today my focus is on the reliability of the Bible. We believe that God wrote the scripture through people. He used people to do it, but he, he inspired his word. I agree with what Dr. A.D. Litfin says. He says, God's words were given through men, superintended by the Holy Spirit, so that their writings are without error. This fact was virtually taken for granted by the Jews. In other words, he's making the point that in, in, in Jesus' day, uh, everybody believed, basically everyone in the society, all the Jewish people believed that the Old Testament, all of it was scripture. They, they just understood that that was the case. But that it's God-breathed. Now we'll talk about this in a little bit. People's perspective of God's word has changed, though, in recent years. When I first moved here back in 1985, which I'm dating myself just a little bit, when I first moved here in 1985, I was talking with college students about God or the gospel or or whatever, or even families. You know, sometimes we would go door to door, and I talk with people. If I would, if I bring up the Bible and I'd quote a verse, people would say, oh, I didn't know that was in the Bible, and they'd receive it because it was God's Word. There was just a a general reverence for the Bible as being God's Word. And so if I said, well, the Bible says you can know you have eternal life, and they go, really? And I'd quote the verse, and and people just tended to believe the Bible is true. It's kind of like that song I grew up with in Sunday school, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's like, for the Bible tells me so, settles it. That's all you needed to know. Well, if the Bible says so, it must be true. But things have changed. More and more people try to argue the fact or the idea that the Bible's full of errors and contradictions, which isn't a true statement. 
Usually if someone says that, by the way, I say, show me one, please. Well, people have discounted it for that, or more and more I'm hearing people say things along the lines of the Bible's true, but it was true for the people to whom it was written. It doesn't apply to us anymore. So this morality doesn't apply, and this thing over here doesn't apply anymore. They, they, they were different people living under different circumstances, and people discount or set aside the Bible. Now, I'm not bothered that people would question whether the Bible's the Word of God. I think it's appropriate to wrestle with some of these kinds of things, but there are consequences for abandoning the Bible as God's Word. And we're starting to see it flesh out in our culture more and more because what happens is when we don't get our values, our morals, our um, beliefs or whatever from the pages of the Bible, where do people then go to get it? And most people these days, from my perspective in talking with people, most of them get it from inside. They decide for themselves what they think is right and wrong, good and bad. And the problem is that that's, that's so subjective. And the problem is that we know from the Bible that the, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who could know it? And we know that God's ways are not our ways. And we're just not reliable sources for determining what is really right and what is wrong. And so when, it, when we look at the Bible as an objective thing, there's just a lot there. We get God's perspective on what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad. We learn from the pages of the Bible about a place called heaven. We also learn about hell and judgment to come. We, we learn about how we should live, you know, the path we should be on as people, which is the way of life, how we live our lives. And most important, we learn what God is like. From the pages of the Bible, you learn what God is like, not just through the teaching, through the way he interacted with people. Watch how, how he talked with people, how he dealt with people. You learn a lot about God from that. Now, I want to ask you the question, uh, you know, if, if you were to set aside the Bible for a minute, where, where do you get your view of what God is like? Because I've talked to people before about what's taught in the Bible, and they say, well, my God wouldn't do that. My God is all loving or whatever. I say, well, where do you get your view of what God is like? And for centuries, we got our view from, from the Bible. It kind of again settled the matter. But now people are doing what's right in their own eyes. They're like the people of Judges in the Old Testament. We only know what God is like based on what's been revealed through the, through the Bible. That's how we know what God is like. And that's where I go to get my opinion about it, not what I feel or think. Because God's ways are not my ways. But people are setting that aside. Now, there's a danger in doing that, and it's significant, but because I'm of the opinion that if we reject the Bible as God's Word, we are rejecting the God of the Bible. Okay, if you reject the Bible as God's Word, you're rejecting the author, the Bible. Now, this comes out in the Old Testament when you had prophets who were commissioned by God to communicate a message to the people, and these prophets got frustrated because the people wouldn't listen. So they went back to God and they said, I, I, I gave the message, but nobody's listening. And, and God's response is, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. But by not accepting the message, they're rejecting me. They're setting aside, so it's a big deal. On the flip side of this, God's word can be so life-giving, so wonderful. David wrote about it in Psalm 19, seven through 11. He said, the instruction of the Lord is perfect. Renewing one's life. Do you want your life renewed? There it is. 
The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. By the way, these are all just synonyms for God's Word. You know, the instruction of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the command of the Lord makes your eyes light up. The fear of the Lord or reverence for the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. They're more desirable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold and sweeter than honey, which comes from the honeycomb. In addition, your servant is warned by them. There's great reward in keeping them. I believe all this is true. That God's word is solid and it's rock solid. It can be relied upon. We can trust it. But... I want to give you some reasons why today. Often when Jesus was asked questions in his day, he would turn around and ask them a question back. So they'd say, Jesus, what do you say about this? And then Jesus would say, well, what do you say about this? And so in answering the question, why do we believe the Bible is the Word of God or it's trustworthy, I want to raise five questions here. I just want to address five different questions. The first one is this, what does the Bible say about itself? What, what does the Bible claim is true concerning itself. Does it claim to be the Word of God? And the clear answer is, well, yes, it does. Now, I recognize that just claiming something doesn't make it true. I could claim that I played professional basketball. When you stop laughing, you know, you'd really... Just to claim it doesn't mean it's true, but it is important to understand it does claim it. And it's throughout the pages of the Bible. Every time you read, thus says the Lord, or the Lord said this, or all of these are claims that this came from the mouth of God. All of them are, but one of the clearest verses is 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good word. Work. The word uh, inspired here means literally God breathed. It's a different, it, it's, it's not the same idea as saying, you know, the writings of, of Shakespeare are inspired. It, no, the word inspired literally means God breathed. All of this is, it's, God, it's, it's the breath of God. It's the word of God. And therefore, it's reliable to, to use it to correct and rebuke and train and, and to become equipped, all of it, because it, it is good. Now, this is how the thing worked. Uh, in the Old Testament and the New, but starting maybe with the Old Testament, God would select a person through, to whom he would speak and through whom he would speak to other people. So Moses is an example. He illustrates it well, okay? God chose Moses, and God spoke directly to Moses, and God told Moses, I want you to communicate certain things to the people, so Moses wrote those things down. Now, God selected that person, but then he confirmed that person through signs and wonders and miracles. I can guarantee you nobody in Moses' day wondered whether he really talked to God or not. They knew it. They had experienced that God was working mightily through him. So when Moses pens these first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all the people knew it was from God. Nobody questioned it. And that's what happened through the rest of the, the Old Testament. Different ones would be tapped, like Samuel. There was no prophecy Samuel ever made that did not come true because he talked to God. Everyone in Israel knew that. It says it explicitly. Everyone knew Samuel was a prophet of God. So when he's penning the books, you know, First and Second Samuel or some of the other ones that are attributed to him, everyone knew it was from God. Isaiah, Jeremiah, 
You want to talk about Daniel? The list goes on and on. So the people of Israel believed the entire Old Testament was true. They believed it was the word of God. And then when you get to the New Testament, you realize the same thing is true because Jesus selected 12 witnesses. And he said, I'm going to speak through you. And all of the New Testament scriptures are attached to, in some way, those apostles, including Peter, or Paul, I mean. Now, what's interesting is that Peter himself regarded Paul's writings as scripture. Did you know that? He, he, he said it. It's found in 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. Of course, Paul, most or more of the New Testament books are attributed to Paul than anyone. But this is what Peter said about Paul. He said, regard the patience of our Lord as an opportunity for salvation. He's talking here about the fact Jesus is delaying and coming back so people would find Christ. Regard the patience of our Lord as an opportunity for salvation, just as our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to him. He speaks about these things in all his letters in which there are some matters that are hard to understand. I'm actually encouraged by that. I mean, this is Peter saying, I don't know what you're talking about, Paul. It was difficult, you know. But then he goes on to say, the untaught and unstable twist them to their own destruction as they also do the rest of the scriptures. And he lumped Paul's writings into the scriptures. That's why we believe it's the word of God. It was like a, a kind of an incarnation of sorts how God did this. You know how Jesus was fully God and fully man without compromising either. So it was the word of God. Even though it was penned through people using their own language and experiences, God guaranteed the outcome would be inspired. God's word, he worked through people maintaining the humanity and the deity of the Bible. I don't mean that the Bible's God, but I mean it's, it's fully God, fully man in a sense. But let's raise a second question. What did Jesus believe about the Bible? I would tend to, to take his opinion pretty seriously. He quoted extensively from the, the Bible, and he affirmed its divine origin, and he also made it clear that we're going to be held accountable for what's taught back there. That's what he said, at least to the religious leaders of his day, Matthew 5, 17 through 19. Jesus said, don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets, which is a way of saying the Old Testament. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill, for I assure you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches people to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He's saying even the, the little, the exact letters... Jesus never had a debate with any of the religious leaders about whether something was Scripture or not, whether it was true or not. Everyone believed it was. The only group in Jesus' day that didn't believe it was the Sadducees. The Sadducees, their Bible consisted of just the first five books of the Bible. They didn't accept the rest of it. But even Jesus, when he was dealing with them, he pointed to one word that was found in the Old Testament from God. And he affirmed that that one word came directly from God. See, he was discussing with them how Moses had, had been met by God. You remember the burning bush and how God called Moses over from the burning bush. And, and God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what he said. 
And Jesus was making the point, notice the, the present tense, verb, I am. Jesus didn't say I was. I am proving that there was indeed a resurrection from the dead, which Sadducees didn't believe. But Jesus was affirming that exact word mattered because God's scripture is inspired. The outcome is inspired by God. So what does the Bible say about itself? What did Jesus believe about it? Third, what does fulfilled prophecy reveal about the Bible? The simple answer is it reveals it's the word of God because nobody, nobody, no created thing, no person can predict the future with 100% accuracy except God. No one can do it. You can't do it. Oh, you can guess. People have made guesses, but prophecy, if it comes true, especially if it's real specific, you know, the prophecies found in the Bible are not vague. They're not like, you're going to die someday. Oh, tell me something I don't know. They were specific, very, very specific prophecies, and only God can do that. In Isaiah chapter 44, verses 6 and 7, in fact, God challenged the other so-called gods. He said, why don't you prophesy something? It's almost like a mockery. Isaiah 44, 6 and 7, this is what the Lord the King of Israel and its Redeemer, the Lord of hosts says, I'm the first and I'm the last. There is no God but me. Who like me can announce the future? Let him say so and make a case before me. Since I have established an ancient people, let these gods declare the coming things and what will take place. They don't believe that they're gods. Prophesy something. Make it happen. Bibles filled with hundreds, even thousands of prophecies, and they're very, very specific. And prophecies about Jesus' uniqueness and where he would be born and the fact that he would, he would be raised in Nazareth and that he would come out of Egypt at a certain point and the fact that he'd be betrayed by a, a close friend of his and the purpose of his death and the resurrection, all of this is prophesied. Hundreds of prophecies. At Christmas time, I'll usually, for example, quote Micah 5, 2, where we discover not only where Jesus was going to be born, but the fact he's eternal. In Micah 5, 2, we read Bethlehem, Ephrata. You're small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from eternity. Oh, that's amazing. Someone's going to come in the future that lived in the past for eternity. Amazing prophecy. It speaks to the deity of Christ. Bethlehem was a tiny dot of a place when this prophecy was made, even in the time of Christ. They say maybe 300 people lived there. To predict that the greatest person who would ever be born would be born in Bethlehem, no one would predict that. If they were going to try to predict something, they'd say, make it Jerusalem. Make it one of the bigger cities. But that's not what happened. Psalm 22 talks about the death of Christ and how the soldiers were going to divide his clothing. Verses 16 through 18, dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They divided my garments among themselves and they cast lot for, lots for my clothing. This one is remarkable. I mentioned this one about a year ago because I discovered that this idea of the piercing the hands and the feet, you know, which obviously is a reference to the crucifixion. Crucifixion did not exist when the prophecy was made. There's no such thing. No one had thought of nailing people to a cross. It never occurred to anyone. So this prophecy was made before any of that existed. I'm just saying that only God can do that. He lives outside of time. In Isaiah 53, we discover why Jesus needed to die. 
Beginning in verse 5, but he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. In other words, the punishment that would lead to us being at peace with God was placed on him. And we're healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. That's remarkable. That's the gospel. That could have been written in the New Testament. Unbelievable. And then his resurrection in Psalm 16:10, for you will not abandon me to Sheol, which is the place of the dead. You will not allow your faith to one to see decay. This has happened to no one since the beginning of your time except one person who died and was buried but didn't suffer any decay. It was Jesus. Now there are hundreds of prophecies like this. Mathematicians have made it very clear it's impossible that they could have just happened accidentally. It's impossible. One, one scholar calculated that the, the idea that one person would fulfill just eight of those specific prophecies, you know, like where he'd be born and how he'd die and stuff, just eight of them would be one to 10 in the 17th power. It's one with 17 zeros. You'd be more likely to win the lottery 100 times. It couldn't happen. I'm just saying, no, maybe these things aren't completely conclusive for some, but it's getting hard to ignore. Four, what does the continuity of the Bible suggest about its source? What do I mean about this? It's one book, but it's actually 66 books. But it's one. It's just one author. Forty different people they believe 40 different individuals penned the, the, the 66 books of the Bible that we have. And they did so over a period of 1,600 years, centuries, over centuries. And the people who penned the books came from different socioeconomic backgrounds. They, they lived on different continents. They spoke different languages. They were very, very different from one another. And yet... The Bible is one book from the beginning to the end. I'm telling you that the God of Genesis 1-1 is the God of the book of Revelation. And everywhere in between, I don't see any inconsistency at all. You want to know what God's like? It's consistent throughout the pages of the Bible. That couldn't have happened accidentally is my point. If I were to write a book with one of you, we'd probably argue over all the details. (laughs) I'd say, well, I'd prefer it this way. I'd write it this way. Well, this is my belief about, you know, I mean, just if it were just one other person. 1,600 years, 40 authors, 66 different books. I'm just saying that it's got to be one author behind it all. And it's consistent what God is like, what people are like, the nature of sin, nature of of all of humanity, the need for faith as the basis of getting right with God. The Scripture is consistent about all of that. And I'm, I'm saying that that would be impossible. Now, this is worth comparing with other holy books out there. I don't want to, I'm not going to put down any religion or anything like that, but almost every holy book of other religions, were, they were penned by one person who made claims. One person. It wasn't a collaborative effort at all. Even in the Bible, we read, a matter needs to be confirmed by two or more witnesses. When it comes to the Bible, there are 40 And they all see God exactly the same. And they all see the problem of humanity the same. And the need for salvation the same. It's one author. The last question I want to raise this morning is what conclusions can we draw from the supernatural effect God's word has on 
people. It, it, it just changes lives. God's Word, even when you read it, it, it's just different than other books. I mean, I like to read a lot, and, and I get inspiration reading different authors, but none of them impacts me like this book. When I open it up, I just, I'm just sensing this is the Word of God, but it changes lives. It transforms people. Now, the way to put it, the Bible actually works in the things it teaches. And part of the reason for that is that it is actually a, a living document, not a dead one. The writer of Hebrews put it this way in Hebrews 4.12. He said, For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the ideas and thoughts of the heart. No book has impacted people like the Bible has. No book has outsold the Bible ever in terms of the years that they've been keeping track of that kind of thing, lives are changed. I think of, of the apostles, for example, they were cowards. They were cowards on the night that Jesus was arrested. They went into hiding, but something changed. Now, I know they saw the risen Christ, and that would make a big difference, but I believe that not only did they see the risen Christ, but in that moment, they understood how the whole Bible points to Christ. The Bible, all the, verses, the books of the Bible, they point to Jesus. And, and I think they put it all together finally and it changed their lives to the point that these cowards were willing to die as martyrs for their faith. Not one of them recanted. Not one of them did. And, and God is changing lives to this day. Now, I know I've kind of covered a lot here today and I don't expect everyone to be persuaded, but I want to give you three applications here. The first one is I want to encourage you to get in the habit of reading the Bible for yourself. It is, it's life-changing. It's, it's life-changing. And if, you're, if you've never been in the habit of reading the Bible, I encourage you to start in the Gospel of John. Uh, and then you can either do Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then keep going, or else you can go John and then Acts, Romans, and keep going, and then come back to the Gospels. I do that before you go to the Old Testament, because the Old Testament's got all kinds of questions you're going to have. So start in the Gospel of John. And, and this can make a difference. I got a letter probably two months ago, a card, small print, a lot of writing. And this woman said, I, you know, I used to attend Chester Ridge Church. I moved away years ago. But she said, you, you harped on something over and over again, and it changed my life. It said that I started reading my Bible. She said it was hard at first. Initially, I think she said it took her like four years to get through the Bible, but she said eventually she did. But she began to read it every day, and she said, I just finished the Bible again, and I can't wait to jump back into it. She said, it changed my life. You said it would, and it has. And she just wanted to write and let me know that, that it, it changed her life, and it can. Second, I want to encourage you to get your values, morals, and beliefs from the pages of the Bible, not from what the world. We're not to be conformed to this world. And this is part of the reason I encourage you to read your Bible so you see what does God say, what does God say, because you're going to hear all kinds of other things that don't line up and you need to be able to see it for what it is. They're counterfeit ways of, of life. They're, they're, they're not life-giving, but the Bible, or what the word, world teaches. Get your values, morals, and beliefs from the Bible. And finally, I want to encourage you to get to know the God of the Bible because I think that's the main point of even reading it. Ask yourself as you read every day, what do I learn about God? What do I learn about what God is like? You know, wrestle with some questions. Why did God deal with these people in this way? 
And it's, it's very eye-opening because I've learned that, the, again, the God is of the Old Testament is the same as the New. People have said to me, I can't count the number of times. Well, the, the, the God of the Old Testament is different than the New. No, he's not. The grace of God in the Old Testament is mind-blowing how gracious and kind he is, how much he puts up with stuff. But there's also judgment. And if you get to Revelation, you'll find the same qualities. Get to know the God of the Bible. That's really what it's about. Get to know Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just uh, want to acknowledge that the Bible is a gift from You. And it is life-changing, and it makes the difference, Lord. And we want to value it. We live in a, a day and age where Your Word is so available to us, even electronically, O oh Lord. And we're grateful for it, but we want to receive it for what it is, Your Word. Help us to value it. Help us to see you in it. And may it change our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time.